Thresholds is supported by BetterHelp, which is the largest online counseling platform in the world. Everyone deserves to receive the support they need to thrive mentally, emotionally, and relationally. But the barriers to therapy, financial and logistical, are pretty high right now between social distancing and the kind of economic stress that the COVID pandemic has created for so many people. BetterHelp makes it affordable to connect privately with a licensed counselor online from anywhere. They have counselors specializing in depression, stress and anxiety, grief, relationships and family therapy, wellness for members of the LGBTQ community, and more. They'll help you assess your needs and match you with a counselor quickly. And crucially, they make it easy and free to switch counselors whenever you need until you find the one that's right for you. It's confidential and affordable, and they even offer financial aid. So if you've been feeling like you could benefit from talking to a licensed professional counselor but have been holding off because the process of finding a therapist, getting to the office, and finding a way to afford it seemed like too much to handle, check them out. Thresholds listeners get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash thresholds. That's betterhelp.com slash thresholds. Now I've got to figure out who I am and how I want to be in the world as a grown man, right? <laughs> um, and I have to do it now with creeping fascism on, the, and, and, you know, and I'm like, what, what does that mean? And so I came up with this other book idea. This is Thresholds, a series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they made afterward. I'm Jordan Kistner. This is Thresholds. Something to note about this season of Thresholds is that all of the audio recordings you're going to hear were made in people's homes, often on their cell phones, in order to keep us all socially distant. And... What that means is that occasionally you'll hear a slightly diminished sound quality or random life things happening in the background, a car backfiring, a phone ringing, a dog walking into the room, my dog walking into the room. Um, and we hope that you will be generous and bear with us on that. Hi, everybody. Jordan here, coming at you from my unofficial sound booth uh, and hoping that you are having a really excellent week and that you are well and safe and healthy. Um, all is well here. I've had a really wonderful week because I've had the privilege of thinking about and reading and talking to Michael Denzel Smith, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching, and who this week is celebrating the launch of his second book, Stakes is High, Life After the American Dream. He also is a prolific magazine writer for Washington Post and Harper's and Art Forum and Oxford American and The Nation, uh, and also for Pop-Up Magazine, which is like a touring magazine, live magazine show where he and I met. Um, we were part of the same tour of Pop-Up Magazine that happened to take place starting the day after Trump was elected. So um, we got to know each other doing that, which was a, a very, very intense time. Um, and I, we, we've sort of met up periodically since then to say hi and chat 
Uh, and so it was in one of those meetings about a year ago that I first heard about Michael's second book. Um, we were both kind of deep in writing and revising books and we met to commiserate over a beer and he was telling me about this project. Um, but he didn't at that time tell me the title of the book, Stakes is High, which um, I've since learned comes from a De La Soul song of the same name. And in the book, he describes how in the music video for that song, you don't see the three members of De La Soul doing anything that looks especially high stakes. There's this contrast between the lyrics and kind of the urgency of the song and the urgency of the title of the song and the fact that in the video, they're like doing laundry and washing the car and hanging out. Nothing that seems really um, so, so urgent. Um, but the context that surrounds those gestures in the video is a crisis. It makes the stakes of something like doing laundry and washing the car really high. They're surrounded by white supremacy. They're surrounded by violence. Um, and that is in a lot of ways the situation that Michael is addressing when he writes this book, which he sets sort of right at that moment, incidentally, when we were both first on this pop-up tour, right at the moment of the 2016 election. And fundamental to his argument is that right now, everything we do, every action we take, even the things that don't seem very important, are high stakes because of the political circumstances we live in. Late-stage capitalism, the violence of white supremacy that is undergirding so much of this country's laws and policies, heteropatriarchy, all the systems that have left us victim to sort of bad policy, an upcoming election, economic desperation for everybody but the very wealthy, total environmental collapse impending caused by climate change, a literal plague. I can keep going, but I won't because why? Um... Something about the way that Michael articulates that urgency as it infuses every corner of his life and our common life now um, felt really like a balm to me, even though the situation that he writes to address is, is really dire. Um, the book he's written is so beautiful and so hopeful. It's really, it's not a recitation of despair. It's an articulation of the need for radical change, which in the book he mentions is predicated on faith, the faith that things can change. And he writes the book in some ways to believe that things can change and to believe that writing is something that can be an important part of bringing that change about. So that's what he came by to talk about this week. And I'm really excited to share that conversation with you um, and to share with you the story of the, the kind of free fall that led him into the process of writing this book when he had a really different one in mind. And with that, uh, I give you Michael Denzel Smith. When I was writing it, I was, I was just like, how the fuck are we gonna sell this book of abolitionist like, ideology and socialism to the, and then, then suddenly uh, the yeah, revolution out, pops off and yeah. like, it's the zeitgeist now, right? Um, so, there, so there also is that sort of being like, am I honoring these ideas in a way that is going to be helpful uh, to 
for people being introduced to them for the first time, because I know that that's, that's going to be a substantial number of people who are just like, oh, this is that what I've been hearing about in the news. And there's a book for me. Like, that's the whole the whole thing right now. Right. It's like order a bunch of books to help you learn how to not be racist and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is such a must feel like such a bizarre canon to be entering, to be entering, to be sending a book into a market of people who are really thirsty for ideas like the ones that you're trying to articulate, but not necessarily because they understand why they're, why they want them or understand the ideas themselves whatsoever. They understand that they want to be seen as good, right? Like they want to be on the right side of things. Um, and, and that's why I'm I, like, I look at the list and all of these things and just be like, these are the books you should read. And then note that like, uh, bookstores are inundated with all these orders for books and then nobody's getting them. Right? Oh like my God, people I are know. not picking them up. Um, and it's just like, I, people are doing it earnestly for the perception that they are good, right? Like they're a good person. They responded to the moment, but that's the problem with all of this is just being like, no, this moment is not like the, the singular action that you take, right? Like this is not going to be like by, by how to be anti-racist, by white fragility, and suddenly racism is fixed in America, right? Like that's just the the processes through which we have to understand like how deeply entrenched it is within our systems and how complicit everyone has been in perpetuating those systems is gonna take way more than just like some soul searching, which I'm glad people are doing, right? Like I'm glad people are doing that sort of soul searching, that level of gut check, like, oh, have I said a racist thing in the past? Have I been a fragile? white person in the past like okay cool but there's that other part of it that is just like that feels like it's bringing comfort to those folks to be like I understand right like I understand who I am and who I've been in this in this world of racism and therefore like now I'm now I'm better it's like you're absolved because you're yeah you're personally better as a human being right and it's like okay, what does that do for any of us, right? Like you're, and, and I think it just reinforces the idea of like the the most insidious forms of racism being sort of personal bigotries, right? Like it's like, I'm not, I'm, I need to be nicer. I need to be kinder. I need to be more open, more tolerant, more accepting. It's like, those are wonderful ideas. Like I'm, I'm so glad that people are getting on board with that because like, you know, treating people with dignity and respect respect is something I think that we have to be paying attention to, right? Like, but it's like those things are happening on a systemic level. They are like over-determining the prospects for life for groups of people who are not white in ways that have nothing to do with our person our interpersonal interactions. Right. I mean it's very nice it's very nice and very important. I don't want to minimize the, mm -hmm. for like any, any given white person to get their heart in the right place and get their mind around the history. But something you write about so 
beautifully in this book, I thought, was the the way that that plays into a really entrenched problem in American discourse and in American self-identity, which is that everything is somehow based around the actions and the identity of the individual rather mm-hmm. than our obligations to each other as a collective. And yeah. it's like, I'm going to buy the book and I'm going to read the book and then I'm going to be educated and then I'm then we're good. Then I can like move on to something else that I'd rather be thinking about as opposed to that being seen as a starting point for collective action mm-hmm. is such a common, I think, pro- such a common problem and one that you're book seems to do a lot of work trying to convince people away from. Yeah, because what else do we have, right? Like there's, there's not, we're all we have. We're all we got. This is, it's going to be an us thing. And it's, it can't be a me doing my individual thing over here and that being sufficient, right? Like it's like what you're just saying is like the idea that I will educate myself, right? Like I'm a white person. I'm going to educate myself, right? Okay. You do that, you buy all the right books, you learn all the right things, and, and okay. Well, those same white people have for decades since Brown versus Board ensured the, the uh, entrenched segregation of our school system and ensuring that like black schools don't receive the same resources that white schools do because the way that we fund schools in this country has to do with the tax base of the of the local school district and then like you know what i mean like it's saying like okay there's collective action that you could do that has to do with education, right? Like you, you're, right. but, but the, the idea of what it takes, and I mean, we see this, we see this in response to the pandemic, right? Like just the idea that the, it's the individual action, it's the individual care for yourself that like makes the difference. It's like, oh no, I'll put my mask on when I think I'm in danger, as opposed to the idea that you're doing it to protect other people, right? And I think that we just don't have that. We don't have that community-minded like uh, advocacy uh, happening within the a U.S. context because we're so accustomed to uh just a, a, a an entrenched form of like stick-to-itiveness and individualism and that that's bred by capitalism. It's just like we're off in our own silos. It's like the American dream being that you move out of the city and go to the suburbs where you have your own home and your own lawn, right? Like, like that's your property that's closed off from everyone else and that you, in, within your home, you take care of all of your problems individually and you take care of your children and make sure that they have the best future. And it's just like, well, none of us can survive that way. <laughs> like None of us can do it on our own. We know that. We know we're social creatures. We're realizing that at home during the midst of a pandemic that like actually separates us from people. And like, we know we need community. We need it to, to support us. I mean, it's the reason I, I, I love the, uh, thinking about like early humans and like watching all those documentaries and reading about like, it's like, it's the reason Neanderthals died off is because they didn't have community, right? Like it's part of the reason homo sapiens were better at doing that. And it's like, well, now we're reenacting in, in, in ways that are very destructive and harmful. What the Neanderth, what killed off the Neanderthals. And it's like, we're supposed to be better than that. Yeah, somehow we looped back around to their error (laughs) after, after a few thousand years. 
Well, God, that touches. I'm, I've like as a good like guide of this particular podcast conversation, <laughs> I feel like I'm supposed to stop and back us up and do something else. But I want to ask you, you've led us like right to one of the questions that I want to ask you. So I'm just going to do it. And Drew, I will loop back afterwards. Um, uh, I was reading your book and I was thinking so I spent a lot of time like clocking when you were using we versus you versus I, um, because sometimes it feels mm-hmm. like you use we mm-hmm. to speak about Americans or the American project in ways that is full of unease or discomfort, where the we doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily feel like it's a we you want to be a part of, and yet you're writing mm-hmm. yourself as a part of it. And in other moments, you write a you and then acknowledges because you're afraid to make it an I. And I wanted to ask you how you made those choices, Mm -hmm. thought about when, when was it important to talk about an ideology as being a we ideology versus a you versus an I? Yeah. uh, It was tough because like there is that, like just what you're talking about, that unease with associating myself with certain things, right? Like, cause I, I too am wanting to, think of myself as a good person that's on the right side of all of these things. But to to indict the system and to indict history and to indict Americanism is also to indict myself as a product of it, right? Um, And I can't I can't do that work of absolving myself from that responsibility to, to say that also, like when I'm talking, we're talking about a collective. We have to have a collective response to all of these things. Well, then it's also a collective responsibility to understand where you fit into all of that and where you have failed. Um, and and I have to own those things. I have to own myself as a product of the very myths and delusions that have been a part of of the sto- the the storytelling in America. Right? Like I. Like in the book, you know, it comes it comes back to New York so often, right? And it's like New York is my guiding star, right? Like it's it's the thing that I think of as offering liberation, and and it's true. Like that's what I used to think of of New York City is just like the city of opportunity, and it's just going to be full of all of these incredible artists like living freely in their truth. And I'm going to be a part of all of that. And it's like, but it's also the city that created Donald Trump. Right. And, and I say that and use Donald Trump as that, that as a symbol, but it's just like, it is a city of racist policing. It's a city of racist housing. And it's a city that, that, you know, the extreme gaps in wealth are just like so visible to you on any given street corner. And so if I'm saying that uh, the American public, right, like, or white Americans have done this to American history over and over, only told the best parts of itself or, or, or use stories to uh, use particular stories in ways that are essentially untruths, right? Like delusional, like do not reflect any actual lived history of anybody that's been subjected to uh, that history. If I'm saying that, but I'm doing it as well, right? Like I'm doing it. I'm doing exactly the same thing that I'm indicting someone else for doing. 
then I'm part of the problem, right? And I can't be honest about the rest of the world without being honest about myself. And so placing myself in that we, yes, it's uneasy. Yes, it's uncomfortable, uh, but necessary. But then also, you know, like sometimes it's a you because I'm still like, I'm. what I was trying to signal is that like, no, it's hard. It's hard to do, right? Like sometimes you're going to run away from it. And sometimes it's going to feel... You're going to you're going to feel your own cowardice and you're going to deflect and you're going to outsource it. And you're going to be like, you no, you did this thing and you are responsible for this. And you really what you're saying is I'm too afraid to admit that I'm I'm culpable. I'm too afraid to lay bare all of my own wrongs. Um, and so how do you be, how how do you hold yourself accountable? How do you hold a nation accountable if you're too afraid to do that? And I'm just sort of trying to model in the book uh, that it's okay to to be in that space right now, right? Because it's it's hard work to face all of that, but you gotta face it. You you have no other choice if what we're looking for is the realization of uh, a nation of ideas that like rest on like us being equal as human beings, us being caring, us caring for one another and providing everyone with everything that they need, not just for basic survival, but to be able to thrive and self-actualize. Like we're going to have to face ourselves in that mirror and say, look, look, I did that too. Yeah, I think the um, something that I, I felt like you were modeling in the book was that that like flinch of deflection when faced with the monstrousness of everything that you're mm-hmm. that you will have to own to being a part of and mm-hmm. therefore partly culpable for, which I think is such a something that will probably resonate with a lot of readers right now, because that it feels like 2020 is of intensification of that kind of Mm. self-reflection and, and reckoning with exactly how failed um, all of these various projects are. Okay. But now I'm going to do the responsible thing and and back (laughs) us up. Um, so one of the, forgive, forgive me. It's like such a, uh, a natural way to have a conversation. Um, so one of the things, the thing, the way that I would usually start this conversation when it's not like somebody I already know, and I'm just like psyched to talk to them about their new book, um, is to start by asking kind of the central guiding question of this interview series project, which was guided sort of by my interest in the way that bodies of work or books can come out of intense moments of Mm -hmm. confrontation or transformation or shift that the writer then has to reckon with on the page. Mm -hmm. And in a a little bit with this book, you name a precipitating moment or or fracture, which is the night of the election Mm -hmm. when actually you and I were both on a plane. I don't think we were on the same planes, but we were both on planes from New York to San Francisco to do that Mm -hmm. pop-up tour. And we, and we like were together in the two weeks after Mm -hmm. that election, which was just the most surreal, like being in hotels on that tour all over the country in the like 10 days after. And I'm wondering if you think about that night, 
as sort of like the precipitating threshold that you would talk about and describe as the the moment that you then had to kind of work out through this book or if there is a if there was something different that came to mind when you were kind of given the prompt for this conversation i i think that moment like that moment is definitely uh it cre- that moment creates this book right in so many ways right but it's part of a series of moments in a way. And it's like, it's hard to pinpoint just one moment, but like what creates this book is a number of things. So it is like that my book was published earlier that year. Um, and I was on tour and I was doing press and I didn't have to think about the election so much. And so I was pulled away from that and, and sort of like had this distance from it that allowed me my own delusion where it was like, oh, I'm not paying attention every day and seeing polls and all of that. So it doesn't like that doesn't seem like a possibility. Donald Trump winning just doesn't seem like a possibility because I didn't have to or or was so consumed with my own project that I wasn't paying attention to a broader like American landscape. So there's there's me wrestling with the book. There was, you know, spending six months of my life promoting that book and then uh, then it sort of stops and it's like so what do I do next (laughs) right like I did it's a really career thing where I'm just like I don't know what comes next after I spent several years trying to form this book then write this book then six months promoting this book And that was the entirety of my life for several years. Like my professional life, as far as I could see it, was this one project. And then it's nothing. And then then it's like, so what do I do with this? What do I do with my time? How do I think about how do I want to, how I want to carry forward? How I want to show up as a writer after this, like, you know, before the book, I was like blogging twice a week for the nation. And then I write a whole book and it's like, well, that blogging twice a week is just not satisfying anymore. Like as an intellectual and creative pursuit. Uh, So there's just like everything dealing with the book. There was turning 30, which I didn't think was going to be a big deal for me. I really just, I was, I, for so long, I'd brushed it off. I'd just been like, no, no, like 30, it's just an age. Like people put way too much on it. It's not a thing. You don't like suddenly change and like, like, but you do change. And then then it was brought, brought to bear for me. Like, and this sound incredibly vain, but I, I went up a waist size for the first time in my adult life, like a month before I turned 30. And it was suddenly just like, oh, no, things do change. And like, yeah, it's like a physical thing, right? Like, but, but it just like put it in perspective for me. That it's like, no, things actually do change with time. Like this 30 marker is something to pay attention to, whether or not it's like a culturally constructed thing about like, you know, that just sort of valorizes and, and romanticizes youth and then cast you off the pasture once you turn 30. Like it's whether, whether it's that or not, there's something to this. Right. And then I had to pay attention to that and then think about like, I'm turning, I've turned 30, I'm turning 30, I've turned 30. And I did the thing that I set out to do. 
I don't know what comes next. I didn't plan for anything. I remember actually, and this, you didn't, you just said this to me in passing when we were on the pop-up tour. And if mm. you'd prefer we not like include this in the interview, that's fine. Just tell me. But I remember you saying to me backstage before one of the shows, you were having one of these, like, what do I do with my life now? Like my book mm-hmm. is out, I'm turning 30. And you turned to me and you said, I never planned to live past 30. Like I I'm- never even thought about the idea of, of being older than 30, like every, all of my plans stopped before 30. And so now I feel like I have to make up what the rest of my life looks like. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had no conception of what a life after 30 could look like because I'd never imagined it. I'd always seen or, or just existed with the fear that I would die before them, right? Like, and that's tied up in so many different things about like what it is to be young and black in an American context, living under white supremacy, like, and my own sort of anxiety, right? Like just like being surrounded by death or feeling I've been exposed to death a lot when I was younger. And I was consumed with that thought. It's just like, oh, at 17, yeah, like you die. Or like 21, you die. Like 25, I'm going to be dead, right? And it's like witnessing during that time like before before all the new names it was Trayvon Martin it was Jordan Davis it was Michael Brown it was just like I don't know I can't conceive of what a life means past this like seemingly arbitrary marker but like it's real for me and it became so real when I like approached it when it it happened and it's like oh now I've got to figure out who I am and how I want to be in the world as a grown man. Right? <laughs> um, it's just like, okay, all right. And I have to do it now with creeping fascism on, the, and, and, you know, and I'm like, what, what does that mean? And so I then, I came up with this other book idea, um, and my editor and I, we sat down, I talk about it in the book, we sat down over pizza. It was the day of like, Trump's inauguration. We decided we weren't going to watch it. We weren't going to engage it. And I had this other book idea that had nothing to do with Trump, I thought. Like, it just was not going to be, like, I was not going to tie myself to that. I wasn't going to think about it for the next four years. I was going to try to run away from it. And we decided on that book. And then the very first sentence was about Trump. Like the very first sentence took me to my barbershop on the day of the election and like people talking about Trump in the, in the election. And I was like, I can't run away. Like I, I'm, I feel like I'm abdicating some responsibility here. Um, and also that there's so much that I want to explore that like is represented in the election of Donald Trump. Um, and so like, yes, the election, the long story short, like the election is this crucial point in which I like, there's a decision to be made about like, what am I going to do? But it's, it's like, it's influenced by all of these other things happening at that same time. How did you, like, the, the mind fuck of being like, wait a second, I'm going to be a, a grown adult person. I'm going yeah. to age. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I might survive to age and grow and have a long career and a long life, except creeping fascism. Um, and the, and the continuing dangers of all kinds, you know, of Mm -hmm. living under white supremacy. Did you, were you very freaked and confused for like a period of time or did you pretty quickly come up with a rubric for deciding who you wanted to be in your 30s i'm I'm still freaked and like trying to figure that out (laughs) i'm still trying to figure that out and it's you know i've talked about it recently where i'm just like i don't i still don't really have a plan like i don't see or or I don't make moves um, thinking this is something that I want two and three and four and five years from now. I just sort of accept yeah. the things that come my way, right? So like I'm, I'm teaching now, right? Like I'm going to be teaching in uh, Hunter's MFA program. It's not something that I ever thought. I was like, oh yeah, I'll teach. Like that'll be a thing. That's a, that'll be something that I can do. No, it never came to mind until someone approached me and said, oh, would you like to, to have this opportunity? I'm like, oh, I guess I could do that. Like, I guess I could see that. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't, I, I've not, but I'm trying to train myself to think more in that vein now to be like, okay, well, maybe what, what I do is teach for a while. Like that'll be several years of my life. Oh, I'm thinking of the next book now to be like, I'm going to plan for like doing it for these number of years. Like that's what I'll be doing. I don't know that I can think too far. Like I still just don't have the the training to be like, oh, well, this is 10 years from now. This is 20 years from now. I'll be looking at retirement. I'm like, none of us will be like, none of no, us are going to be able to retire. <laughs> like we'll be lucky if there's a planet still for us to be able to, to uh, exist on. Um, but like, and uh, yeah, like I, I'm trying, but I'm still freaked out by it. Like it, it's still, I, it shows up in like, you know, my my friendships, my romantic life, like my financial life, where I'm just like, I, I want to plan for like all of this future, but still don't know, quite know how to do it. I'm until now, like I didn't really have a lot of money in my savings account because I'm just like. I get money, I spend it. And like, then there will be another check at some point, right? Like I'll just, I'll just live off of that. But it's just, and it's like, cause the mindset was, well, I got to enjoy it while it's here. I got to enjoy it while I have an opportunity to. Right. If you don't believe in, in, in a, in a future that is tangible and real, why would you put money aside for it? Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm only now being like, okay, no, I, I, this is, I don't even know that I, I, I think of it in terms of uh, it being a sure thing. It's just like now it's a possibility that I should keep an open mind about, like there being a future. It's so interesting because it feels like this book to me is such an, it reads to me like an attempt to articulate a worldview, mm. a, a summation of this is what I believe as mm-hmm. an adult person in America. And and it also is sort of a plea for action that might create a future that's inhabitable, right? It's a it's yeah. a really future-oriented book in its own way, even in a way that feels full of fear and full of skepticism and full of 
um, like the challenge of making the future something we can all survive yeah. in various ways. Um, it feels like a book that has that comes out of a desire to imagine a future that is possible and articulate yourself having an orientation toward it. Absolutely, like you you hit it right on the head. It's it's me working out all of those anxieties around like saying, okay, I used to not believe that I would have a future, and now I'm here in in that space. And I'm looking around <laughs> and I'm saying, well, the conditions that made me believe that the future was not possible still exist. And there's so many things that have to change. And there's so many things that like have to change, not just for me, right? Like not just being like selfish, like, no, there's things that have to change so that I can live my future. It's like, so that we, so that the the we that I articulate toward the end, like the, the idea that all of us and like caring for everyone at each point of identity, at each point of uh, his history, right? Like that, all of us have a responsibility to ensure the future for other people because of the ways in which we have benefited and from systems of oppression and that we have enacted violence in other people's lives. We have a responsibility to course correct. Uh, and we have, we, we're, we're, we're up against it. We're really up against time right now. And so like, it's urgent. It's really urgent. And, it sounds weird. Like it's, it's a really hopeful book in so many ways, right? Because I'm saying that it's possible. Like we can do it. I understand that now. I understand that that future is possible. It's just like, how much work are we willing to do to make it, like to actualize it? Um, and are we going to actualize it for everyone? Are we going to continue on this path in which like Black trans women feel like, they're going to be, they're at risk of dying at any moment and aren't going to make it past, oh, they, they're being killed. It's so young, right? Like, like so young. 19 and 20. I forget there yeah. was a, there was released the sort of the average life expectancy of a black trans woman in America. Yeah. And it was just like an appalling, just an it's appalling. A, it's appalling. It's it appalling. was like 31 or something, maybe not even. It's it's right around there. I have to there. check if, that. Yeah. yeah, it's right around there, and it's just like that doesn't have to be. Like it just doesn't have to be, and we we can do things right now that will protect their lives, and that the all that it cost us is the sense of superiority that we've gained by virtue of denigrating and killing them. That's what it cost us. And so, like, are we are we saying that other people's lives are worth that? And I think that that's the thing. It's like that that idea of feeling powerful by virtue of dominating someone else, right? And that's something that we have. Like, it's it's hard to let go when your only conception of your yourself as having any worth is through power so defined it's like we can reconceptualize power right like power in and of itself isn't the problem the power the problem is seeing power as something that's coercive as something that is 
like violent, right? Like yeah, there's dominative. power. Yeah, there's power in the collective. There is power in us coming together to solve our like most pressing problems and like ensuring life can continue on this earth for generations and generations. There's power in that. There's power in us talking to one another. There's power in us seeing one another and acknowledging each other's worth. There's power in all of that. But we have been so socialized into a different kind of power that that finds its most like egregious and and violent uh, expression in that of cis hetero white patriarchal capitalist power, right? Like the idea again of the individual exploiting other people for their own wealth, their own gain, ensuring that laws and customs are in place that treat other folks as second-class citizens and then tokenizes a few select people to ensure that like the masses are duped into believing that there's possibility within this system. And that kind of power is seductive to people because it 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 makes you feel special when you've achieved it. Right. It makes you feel like you have done something that is uh, it makes you feel like you have uh, reached the, the 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 pinnacle of humanity in that, like you stand alone or you stand in the class of, of very few people that are able to do this. And it's just like, well, why do you want to be with the few? Like, why do you want to be with like this tiny group of people? What is special about that? What's special is that like human beings need one another. But that's what makes us special is that we need one another and that we have the intelligence, I hope, that like to to recognize that and build with each other. Like these we like it is not helpful to anyone but them that white men build monuments to themselves and then ask everyone else to worship them. And like, it's just, it's not helpful. It doesn't do anything <laughs> for anyone. <laughs> oh my God. Calling it not helpful is like such a gentle, <laughs> such, a, such a gentle way to level that critique. It's true. It's not helpful. It's not helpful. It's, it's not, fucking, it's not helpful at all. It's, sure yeah um something like it feels like especially towards the end of the book you start to grapple with the way that this question of collectivism as a as a different way to understand like how anyone can be useful, like what, how you can be useful by being useful to the collective, by empowering the collective is something you write about toward the end of the book while you're describing this sort of crisis of faith that you had, that writing was useful at all, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that, that you could, that there was revolutionary power in writing. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you, I imagine that the like very beautiful two-page articulation of that process is a, like, disguises a much messier, much bigger (laughs) and longer process of feeling like what is, what is writing for? Is, is there any revolutionary power in this? And then realizing that you, you think there probably is. Yeah. I think I, again, coming back to the election as the, as the sort of pivotal moment here, 
I think right after that, I was, I was just like, what the fuck is the point of what I do? Right. Um, you know, we were doing pop-up together and I was reading this essay that was about sneakers and fashion and like activism and stuff and like thing. And it was just like, this is so frivolous. Like this is, this is not doing anything for anybody right now. Like as we're, and and, and it was, it was the, the more I felt that like um, the longer this, the presidency of Donald Trump went on is like the more I felt that it was like, here's the Muslim ban. What does me writing words, like, how does it counteract that? Like, what, is, what does that mean when you're going to, I mean, we talk about family separation at the border, which is another thing that like, was happening, um, but like people being separated from their families by virtue of the Muslim ban, right? Like you can't travel back and forth. Like you can't, like, you can't see people that you love. Like what does me writing words like, have to do with pro, like protecting those families. Like, how does that, how does that actualize? Um, that was, it was my thing is thinking like, even if I'm doing this sort of like work directly, right? Like speaking directly into it. The problem that I find is, is just saying, so who am I writing to and what are they going to do with this? Right? Like if I'm just writing to a group of people who are, self-satisfied by the action of reading this, like coming back to what we're, we're talking about in the beginning, like that they're like their form of protest is simply being informed, right? Or like having the right opinion that they can deploy against someone in an argument, right? right? Like how is that useful? Like how is it useful if we win the debate over whether or not we call them concentration camps. Like, is, is the, they still exist, right? <laughs> like, they're still right. torturing people. There's mm-hmm. still children facing sexual violence in these places. They're still, like, traumatized. So what does winning that debate do? Like, I couldn't see... I couldn't see, like, that going from A to B to this, like level of revolutionary action in the streets in which, but I think, you know, there was, I, I wrote that, that ending more hopeful than like, uh, than, than I actually felt at the time was just being like, no, I want to believe that the writing is useful, even though I'm not feeling it. But then this summer in reaction to the killing of George Floyd, you start hearing the people say, defund the police. And you start hearing people say, abolish the police. It's like, you got that from somewhere, right? Like somebody wrote that down somewhere. And it took a while. It took a while for it to make it to the streets and for it to be an actual political demand, but it happened. And, And it's, again, coming back to something else we're talking about, recognizing the long arc of it, right? Like the, that there's a future. And like, I couldn't see that with my own sort of uh, understanding that like a future is not possible. It's just like it, the immediacy of it felt like it was the prime thing, right? Like I need, if I need to write this thing now and that thing needs to change tomorrow or else there's no hope. But now there's the recognition that no, like these are 
these are seeds. These, 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 and you have to, you, it sounds like corny. Like everyone's like sort of doing gardening at home now because of the pandemic <laughs> and everything. But you, you recognize like you plant the seed, you feed it, you water it, and it blooms into something. And it, and it's like, you have to be patient though. You have to recognize that it's going to take time. It's going to take repetition right like i i and know. all of the labor of preparing the soil so that the yeah. seed will even take if we're going to yeah. extend this metaphor which is like work that is happens for a long time before long you time. can even get the seed in the ground exactly exactly and it's like that was my my sort of reckoning with myself to be like michael what you do is not useless it's that you haven't been able to see the fruits of it just yet. And if you want to, you have to like take care of yourself and like do all that you can to survive and like get to get to that point, but also keep plugging away at it. Like you're going to have to repeat yourself. It may not be satisfying creatively to like keep repeating yourself over and over again, these ideas, but they're going to they're going to reach someone that's going to do something with them someday. And like that's what keeps me going now is just being like, look, if if what I do doesn't show for another five, ten years, okay. But I I recognize that like we're tilling the soil, we're we're planting the seeds, we're watering them, like this is that moment. And and yeah, like we, we we can't we can't underestimate like what that work um, what that work produces. It, it it is even if we don't get to see it ourselves. Even if there were some swift, violent revolution to. To, to sweep the country tomorrow, right? And we overthrew all, all the power. So there's still the matter of building that takes a lot of time, right? Like it doesn't happen in a moment. It doesn't happen in an instant. You have to, you have to understand that um, and, and understanding that as what we do as writers, it's like what we're saying now, like, no, you're not going to see the immediate shift in consciousness happening for people, but you're giving them something to think about and to, to wrestle with internally um, and hopefully bring them together collectively to discuss. And then I don't know what form it takes. I, I can't say that for with any certainty, but it is, it, it's a project that, you know, it's a project that, that requires um, a lot of foresight <laughs> to, to, to just be able to say one day this will take hold. Um, and, and then a lot of faith to just be like, it will. <laughs> yeah. Something I really, really left me feeling um, hopeful about after reading Stakes is High was just the fervency of the way that you hold the ambiguity of feeling scared, mm. feeling like you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how 
a new world could be made, but that you have so much faith and are willing to articulate so much faith that it's possible and that we can all believe in it and that we all have to believe in it in order for, in order for it to manifest. Yeah, we have to, right? Like, it's not just that we can, like, we certainly can. Like, And, and I, I think that that was a, another thing that I was trying to, to wrestle with in the book is that, you know, by naming, like, good white liberals, it's like, they kind of believe that something better is possible, right? Like, like that's, that's sort of the articulation of that ideology is, right? Like, they, like, no, we could, we can do good things. We're up against so much that there's just like, it, it seems like it's impossible, right? Like, and that, like, to say like, yeah, so you can believe it, but we have to right now, we have to believe it with all of our, like, earnest hearts that it is possible, right? Like that, that we can't dismiss it as like, you know, uh, we can't dismiss it and, and say that like, oh, we won't get 60 votes in the Senate. Oh, we're not going to be able to marshal like the votes in Ohio for, for this candidate. Like we have to actually believe that what we see as a moral future in which every person is cared for and every person has the right to self-actualization and that we share and that we look out for one another. We have to believe that that is possible now because if we keep hedging, we'll keep acting on the hedge. We won't, we won't like, we, we won't fight as forcefully. We won't love as forcefully in the moment, believing that what we're building toward is something that looks more egalitarian, something that looks like utopia and like, sure, we can like wrestle with like ideas of utopia and we can have that philosophical discussion. But like, if what we're, if we're not imagining our best world and we're not believing that it's possible, then all that, all that, all the actions that are going to be produced in our present moment are things that fall short of that. Which translates to a willingness to let some people die because we feel like, yeah. oh, it's just not super practical. It's you not know? practical. Yeah. Um, it's not practical to fight for universal health care because you're not going to win it. And it's like, okay, so now in the midst of a global pandemic, people don't go to the hospital, worried about their medical bills. People aren't calling ambulances when they need them. We're not able to test everyone that we need to. And it's just like, well, that means that that number, 150,000 at the time we're speaking, is going to continue to climb for like because we're, we're unwilling to believe that that thing is possible and that we're not going to convince whoever to get on board with it. And so yeah, we're, we're okay with sacrificing people now for our limited political vision, our limited political imagination, because we're just like, oh, that thing looks hard. It looks hard to do that. It's like, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard to face systems so entrenched that they then become part of our everyday thinking. Right. Like, I mean, just the way that we relate to one another is then informed by the way that these systems operate in our lives. It's really hard to like unlearn all of that and unlearn behaviors that that have us at odds with one another. Yeah. OK. 
Are you ready to do it, though, because you believe that that thing is better than what we have now? And that's really what it comes down to. And it's just like, do we have the force of our convictions to be able to pursue it? Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. <laughs>